I am very happy to introduce everyone to Lisa Geller, someone who I've known for many, many years now. And for full disclosure, I was her medical oncologist at the Massachusetts General Hospital for part of her journey. And I've seen her through some of the worst, but also saw her walk through the other side. And she tells quite a journey and one that isn't completed yet. So with that, welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. Give us a little bit of your background so that the listeners can put some context into what we're going to talk about. Sure. I'm 47 years old, grew up outside of Boston. I currently teach at a private boarding school in in Maine. I work with teenagers every day, so that's an adventure. (laughs) And interested in a lot of things. I like to read and write, and I especially like to write cook and spend time with friends and family. So that's a little bit about who I am. I know your personal history as it relates to this cancer goes back quite a bit, knowing that you were diagnosed not only the one cancer that I met you for, but even before then. Do you want to go ahead and tell us about your experiences in in the world of cancer? Sure. So exactly 10 years ago, around this time, I was experiencing an itch and a cough. Thought the cough was just allergies. Thought the itch was just maybe a reaction to something, maybe eczema, something like that. And eventually went to the the doctor, had some blood work done, and they found some elevated white cell count. And one thing led to another. And in December of 2010, I was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. I spent six to eight months in treatment. I had a pause in in there for, uh, I had a, a pneumonia, some kind of infection that put me in the hospital and put my treatment on pause for a little while. I just did traditional, the traditional ABVD regimen of drugs and was in remission uh, about nine months later. About a year after that, uh, I went in for my annual or every six-month scan, and the Hodgkin's lymphoma had returned, and I was then told that I had to have a stem cell transplant. Mm -hmm. So I then went through chemotherapy, stem cell transplant, and radiation, and that was about that was a long time between between treatment and recovery, I would say, about, about a year till I started to feel like myself again. Mm-hmm. Then I went into remission again. And then about um, a year and a half later, was diagnosed with endometrial cancer. Um, and how old were you when you were diagnosed with the endometrial cancer at that point? You were early um, 40s? Early 40s. Yep. I yeah. believe I was 41 or 42. I was 37 when I was diagnosed with the Hodgkins, and I think it was about mm-hmm. about five years later. I'm wondering that whole experience with the lymphoma. How did that? How did you approach that at such a young age, especially as you went into remission and relapse, and then had to undergo treatment again? Well, yes, I am very independent, and along with that comes being a control freak. And for me, it was I lost all control. I don't know how to describe it, but but when you lose control of your body and you're a person that's always in control, it's a big blow to your Mm -hmm. psyche. It's something that, you know, 
I, I have faith in medicine and I have faith in my doctors, the people who've treated me, especially you, but you're sort of giving over the deepest part of yourself to something and you don't know what's going to happen. It took its emotional toll on me for sure. Yeah. Some people talk about the quote end of cancer treatment and that experience of remission as celebratory, you know, the sort of let's throw a party I'm going to leave this all behind me and I'm going to go forward. Was that your experience when you were dealing with the lymphoma? Yes. My sister had Hodgkin's lymphoma also. And so I saw her go through the treatment and do all of that. And then she was fine. So I just thought, okay, the same thing. I'll go through the treatment and I'll be fine six months Mm -hmm. later, eight months later and move on with my life. I've worked my whole life. I was always kind of itching to get back into work and back with my friends and, you know, live a normal life, mm-hmm. doing things that people my age were doing, getting married, moving up in their careers, mm-hmm. having kids, buying houses and, and all of that, all of that stopped. And so when I went in, got in, went into remission each time from the Hodgkins, I thought, okay, I'm ready for this. I'm ready to start mm-hmm. living my life again. Now, when you were diagnosed with the uterine cancer, you know, I remember meeting you for the first time. And I think we even had a conversation about it's not usual for young women to get this kind of endometrial cancer. And it's not usually, you know, someone like you typically doesn't develop something like this. It's older women presents with bleeding, but after the menopause. I'm wondering, did the lymphoma experience prepare you at all for your diagnosis of endometrial cancer? That's a good question. I mean, it it just took me by surprise. I just thought, okay, stem cell transplant, knocked that out, all set, all good to go. And it took me by surprise. And I think, I think there were coping strategies that I had that helped with the endometrial cancer. But I think whether it was with you or my other doctors who treated me for the endometrial cancer, one of you or all of you or eventually would say, we've never seen this before. Whereas I felt like when I had the Hodgkins, it was kind of a known quantity. People have had it before. And I always kept feeling like I'm getting this. I've never seen this before. We've never seen this before. It's growing so fast. We've never seen this before. And so all that uncertainty was a lot different because mm-hmm. I didn't I didn't know what to expect from from day to day, from appointment to appointment. And at that point, what did you tell people about what you were going through after two experiences undergoing pretty intensive therapy for a blood cancer and now you're dealing with this. Did you did you share that with your friends? I did. The first two times I had a core kind of a core group of friends and I sh- and I shared it and you know I don't think I talked about it like a ton on social media the first two times. I was pretty pretty quiet with it, pretty private with it. And then the difference when I was diagnosed with the endometrial was I didn't want to be quiet with it anymore. And I started to write and I started Mm -hmm. a blog and I found a lot of support doing that. You know, there's, there's the supportive community that are your friends and family and they pass it Mm -hmm. along to other people. And I still get emails from people saying, Oh, I'm in Australia and I'm experiencing the same thing you are. And so I shared a lot of myself about that. I did struggle. I think there's a, not a stigma is the wrong word, but 
there's sort of an embarrassment attached to anything that has to do with being having a, a female cancer or mm-hmm. a lady cancer. And so that was hard to share because yeah. a lot of people don't know what that means, what endometrial or uterine cancer means. Mm-hmm. I had a lot mm-hmm. of like, well, what is that? You know, it's not as basic. So that was interesting. I'm wondering, what was the difference in terms of the support you got through social media and all your online community and compare that with what you had in your life? What I got through the online community was that I wasn't alone. And it was people who were experiencing similar things reached out to me. And that was good to know that I wasn't alone. And then Mm -hmm. the other thing was, it's I'm a person who has a lot of friends, but a small group. I tend to be more on the introverted side. So I I have a small group of very good friends and then I have a lot of friends. And so this was like opening, it was opening my tent up and sort of saying, okay, you people can come in and be in this with me. And I felt loved and cared for and supported and was really helpful. Did you find you could be more honest in one medium versus another? I am a person that deals with things with humor So I always had a little snark to what I wrote. And I think that was a a protective mechanism to say, okay, I'm going to share this much, but I'm not going to share all the way. I'm not going to share all of it. There's still a little piece I'm keeping to myself. All right. So let's talk about your experience with endometrial cancer. Why don't you tell folks what your experience was like? Yeah. So I thought I was going to have surgery and be done with it. So when I was diagnosed, it was, it was localized and I had a hysterectomy and thought I was going to be, that was it. I was going to be fine. Again, knew somebody who was in a similar situation, same thing that happened to this woman. Again, this woman was much older, was a colleague of my mother's and she had the hysterectomy and was fine. And then one thing led to another and it spread and it was kind of like, what, well, what do I do? And surgery, radiation, all those things, like what all of a sudden it was so many moving parts, I guess. It wasn't just getting on chemo. And and it was also that chemo wasn't necessarily an option for me because mm-hmm. I had had the, the stem cell transplant. And I remember that even the littlest bit of chemotherapy, your body couldn't withstand. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You put me on uh, something. Cisplatin. Cisplatin. Yep. And I was knocked out for a couple of weeks. I think even my counts were, and I can't tolerate that. And so everybody sort of thinks, oh, you have cancer, you get chemo and that's how you treat it. And for me, it was sort of different things that were needed to treat me. And so she's saying it spread and we probably have to do radiation, but we're not really sure. So, you know, go ahead and get a second opinion. And so I got my second opinion before I really got my first opinion, which Mm -hmm. was you. And I went to a doctor at another cancer center who told me, you know, we only can do chemo. Um, and we could do chemo and radiation, but it's, it's a pretty aggressive tumor and, um, that's how we would do it. And then I saw you and you had a different approach. Endocrine therapy, approaching it by blocking hormones. I was thinking like, this is hocus pocus, right? Like, of course, chemo is going to work. That's going to be the thing. This is crazy. You're a crackpot. (laughs) Like, I just was like, 
in this, like, I didn't know what, didn't know what just to do. for the readers to know she actually never called me a crack no i did not <laughs> but go on <laughs> i you just when somebody when somebody brings you an alternative to what is typical you know i bristle yeah. at that i'm very i'm very traditional and so i started on that and then that didn't really work the tumors kept kept growing and then we approached it with radiation i mean chemotherapy is miserable but radiation, I had 50 days of radiation. The fatigue was was just out of control and unbearable sometimes. And I got sick. There's this sort of fallacy that you kind of go get zapped and you're fine. So I did the radiation and the, the tumors just kept coming back. They were very stubborn tumors. At one point, I remember, it's one of the things that I remember the most about us working together, just trying to prepare you for this not going well at all. Yeah. And just saying, you know, I referred you to our colleague in palliative care, yeah. which was so hard, just so you know, it was so hard for me to do that for someone who's literally my age to refer someone to palliative care. Yeah, that was hard. I mean, that was, that was sort of, I didn't know what it meant. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I'd heard that term tossed around, but I didn't know what it meant until I kind of looked it up <laughs> and thinking about it being, you know, I, I thought I was just going for pain management and I know mm-hmm. that's part of it. I mean, I, throughout this, yeah, it was process, about supportive care, but you're right. Yeah. I mean, I think there was this underlying fear and concern. I mean, I think at one point I remember telling you that like, I'm actually very scared. Yeah. For you. Yeah. Um, that, that I honestly was so afraid you weren't going to make it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that, that I think is just, I don't know. It's so hard to, it's so hard to fathom that I was there, that I was at that point and I was in so much pain. And I think the wonderful thing about pain (laughs) is that you don't think about other, anything but the pain. And so I was sort of numb to what everything else meant. I don't know if that makes sense. Um, I think, yeah, I think it does. And I think that's, that's also why I think it was important for us to get that third person involved, that palliative yeah. care specialist. Cause every time we spoke, you were so concentrated on, on what else can we try? Right. And I really, really didn't want to be the one to say, we've done all we can. Right. There's nothing more to do. Right. And then to have that person extra to sort of, help with the pain and also help to reinterpret things. I think. Yes. Yeah. It was, it's, it's like therapy, but not, I went for pain management and it helped more with emotion management during this time. I wasn't working. I was on medical leave and, you know, I'm one of those people that my work gives me meaning. And so I had no meaning. I mean, it was like all I could do to walk my dog. Um, you know, it was, it was a very sad time in my, in my house. I was staying with my parents. Right. Um, right. Very sad. So this loss of independence was just compounding everything else. Yeah. 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 So we had decided that based on certain criteria that was present on your tumor, it was in the time when immune therapy was just sort of coming into focus mm-hmm. in oncology. And you and I talked about that and we decided let's try it. I don't see a harm in trying something, even if it isn't approved. Tell us about 
what was your recollection of our conversation regarding immunotherapy? I had read this book. It was called something like of catastrophes and miracles. And it was about Mm. this woman who had melanoma, who was basically at death's door and she got on immunotherapy and it saved her. So I'd always kind of had that in my mind and I just trusted you. Mm. Like I just trusted that this was my only hope. I was ready to sort of figure out, you know, it sounds morbid and whatever, but I was ready to sort of plan my funeral and try to get things in order for my parents because Mm -hmm. they were going to have to pick up the pieces. And I just remember being, being hopeful. You'd think that having been through what I've been through, you might not have a lot of hope. Yeah. Um, And I think there was always just a part of me that was like, I trusted you. I am like a firm believer that don't go on the internet. Like, <laughs> even though you're putting your story on the internet, even though my story is on the internet, <laughs> but I'm a, but don't type in, you know, don't like when I got Hodgkin's lymphoma, my, my mom every day would be like, Oh, I read this about this. And I read this about this. And I'm like, I can't. So I will tell you how I felt, but did you get a sense of whether or not it was working? It was nerve wracking at first mm-hmm. because it was, you know, every three weeks. And so I had my first, first treatment and then I go in and three weeks pass and nothing happens. And I'm just kind of freaking out a little bit because it's not, I think it's not working three weeks. It's not working. I think I went in for my next treatment and thought, okay, let's go in and do this again and see what happens. And then I remember going to see you and you giving me an exam and saying it's melt. It is literally melting away. And that was like, okay, this is going to work. And I don't know how long it was till I got a clear scan, but it was, it was fairly quickly. I would think in the world of, of cancer. I think you're right. My recollection is at one point you were in such heavy doses of pain medications. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, several months into treatment, they were, you were done. And I remember we went to your surgeon who did an even better pelvic exam and she saw no evidence of cancer. I know everybody involved in your cancer care actually cried a little. Well, that makes yeah, me so want to cry. Well, you know, it's one of the things that we hide from the people we treat that we do get quite emotional, mm-hmm. especially when, you know, you think, I don't know what else to do. Yeah, this is the only thing I can try. So how has this whole experience sort of changed you? Both the book, good and bad. I know it can't be yeah. all like beds and roses and you just want to go dancing every day of your no, life. No, definitely not. <laughs> One of the more negative attitudes, maybe you would say I have, is I always think the other shoe is going to drop. It's just too good to be true. But I think in a way that is sort of preparing to not live to a certain age. I don't think about myself at 80 or I don't think Mm. about myself when I retire. So you think your goals are like more immediate rather than these long-term things? Yeah. 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 I've become less rigid. Like I used to be a person that everything needs to be in its place. Everything needs to be clean and perfect. I'm not like that anymore. I think I'm much better in a crisis 
when things don't go right, I, I don't think I freak out as much. I'm open to change. I think I'm willing to grow and learn from experiences. I think in some ways I have more of an open heart. I think my heart mm-hmm. was pretty closed and mm-hmm. I'm more open to that. Has it affected the way you engage with your students? Yes. Yes. I think it's given me um, more of an ability to kind of meet them where they're at. And so as you are living in uncertainty, right? With yeah. this sort of this fear of recurrence is probably on this low level of your everyday experience. I guess the question would be, what do you define as meaningful? What does a life worth living mean to you, for example? I find meaning in work, in working with kids and mm-hmm. working with in, in my colleagues, you know, kind of knowing that, that I have a, an influence on, on kids in some way. Mm-hmm. It's really being, being part of something bigger than yourself, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. that feeling that keeps me going. And I would say my family gives me meaning. I sort of hit the parent jackpot. As you know, my mother, um, the woman, uh, until COVID, the woman never missed an appointment. So how did you view this cancer experience as it related to what your family went through, what your mom was going through? I mean, did you tell her how, how scared you were at any point? Were you that honest with her? Probably. Yeah. Probably. That's good. I would That's think great. so. I would think so. In some ways, you don't want them to know how scared you are. But I, I remember a moment where, where I told both my parents, really, I was, um, I was in a lot of pain. I was lying in bed and, and the sun was str- sort of streaming through the window. And I can remember everything about it, how it felt, my dog lying in bed next to me and just talking with them about it mm-hmm. because I, it, it went unsaid sometimes. Those things mm-hmm. went unsaid because they were too painful to talk about. I just think there is this language uh, of cancer that that I think you're right. That is too painful for parents or siblings or husbands or loved ones. They don't want to admit how scary it is to the person undergoing it because they don't want to, quote, add a burden. What would you say to anyone who is either facing a new diagnosis or is is living with this experience? I think it's about people and letting people in and not not dealing with it alone. I come from the like suck it up family, like just suck it up and deal. And it's okay to feel sorry for yourself. You got to sit in your crap and feel sorry for yourself. That's okay. To be in the situation where you have a diagnosis or you're living with a diagnosis, you know, a positive attitude is great if you can have it, but it's okay to be negative. I was recently talking to an oncologist and I said, I'm, I'm very lucky. And he said to me, he said, you're not lucky. You got cancer. You know, you're, you're, you're lucky that you had a kind of cancer that could be treated, but you know, let it suck. It's okay Mm -hmm. for it to suck, but you can't sit in it forever. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I see you, I see you. And the word that comes to mind is resilient, that you just seem so much more resilient now after all of these years <laughs> and it's nice to see you again and it's, it's nice, nice to, to hear you again. so let me just close and say thank you so much lisa for joining us on this podcast and sharing your story hearing the experiences of others can help people 
cope with the challenges cancer brings and help others find inspiration leave a review of the podcast and subscribe today on itunes or spotify to hear every new episode thank you for listening to your stories conquering cancer the purpose of this podcast is to educate and to inform this is not a substitute for professional medical care and is not intended for use in the diagnosis or treatment of individual conditions guests on this podcast express their own opinions experience and conclusions The mention of any product, service, organization, activity, or therapy should not be construed as an ASCO endorsement.